welcome again to the Cilia podcast series, a series reflecting the findings, talking points, and work in progress of the Cilia project, comparing intersectional life course inequalities among LGBTQI plus citizens in four European countries. I'm Yvette Taylor, a professor in the School of Education at the University of Strathclyde and Scotland-based PI. I hope you'll listen to the other podcasts with Lou Brodie, Dr. Charanjeet Mann and Professor Shavin Cowan. In this one, I speak to Lucy Whitehouse, who is the founder and director of Fumble, which is a sex education charity in the UK. Fumble makes digital resources on sex, relationships, healthy bodies, puberty and mental health, co-creating content with young people for young people. Impressively, Fumble reaches 200,000 young people a year. Here I talk to Lucy about experiences of, failures in, and the importance of sex and relationship education, which Cilia respondents in Scotland had much to say about. Conversations with interviews were often rather similar across the age range, which maybe challenges the idea of generational difference and school improvements in formal sex education. I started by asking Lucy about the Scottish Government's intention of being world-leading in the field of LGBT-inclusive education. It's a good question and it is something that I wonder about quite often in terms of are we making progress and it feels in some ways like we are in terms of LGBTQ plus inclusion both sort of structurally in the state mandated areas of things like education and also more culturally in terms of representation on film and television and beyond. But it's really difficult especially in this age of the internet especially in this age of like competing media narratives to know whether what you're experiencing as an individual is necessarily representative of what the majority of minority groups are experiencing. So I guess that's a good question. And in terms of being hopeful or cautious, things, headlines that sort of worry me that we've had. And yeah, so for example, um, in England, I think just in the last week, so government-backed projects tackling the bullying of LGBT students in England have had all of their government statutory funding cut this last week. And you hear such competing sort of, sometimes you'll hear a really positive headline on this topic, sometimes you'll hear a really negative headline on this topic, and it's difficult to pick up the thread as an individual, in a, particularly in this mediatized sort of whirlwind of news that we get nowadays, to pick out whether there is any progress being made or not. And I guess that maybe that's where this kind of research that you're doing is so important because that can help us to start to pick out from all of that noise what actual progress or not is being made, which is exciting for someone like me trying to provide for young people looking for advice and information on sex and relationships, including sexuality and gender identities. Um, Yeah, but... But either way, we know that there's a demand for really quality, robust, reliable and also relevant resources online for young people asking these questions because we know they're going to be looking online. I mean, almost regardless of how much progress is made in the wider social sphere on an individual level in in domestic settings, there's always going to be young people who don't get the access to the information or support they need. 
Um, and yeah, so what we think at Fumble is it's quite exciting that young people can use the internet to start to explore these questions on their own terms, even if they are in an unsupportive or difficult family domestic situation. And even if they're not receiving adequate sex and relationships education at school or um, education that sort of addresses wider LGBTQ plus uh, needs and experiences. Thank you. That, that's really helpful. And I was really interested to hear about the ways that you were thinking about these things happening in cycles rather than just not necessarily at getting better all the time. And it, it does put me in mind of our older and younger respondents who reported surprisingly similar experiences across the age range. How do we understand those similar experiences when much is made of yeah, young pe young people as generationally different and, and older people as you know out of the picture or not having sex and relationships? Yeah, it's a great question. I would love to see more sort of concrete research done that can start to respond to that. Because as I say, it's difficult to pick it out really from um, just the impressions that you get from media at the moment. But yeah, I was really interested that your research is covering this question across the generational span, because I think from just anecdotally from the conversations I have through working on Fumble, with people of all different generations, we do hear those same themes coming up. And it's why we get quite a lot of enthusiasm from older people who are from the LGBTQ plus community who say, this is the kind of thing I really wish I'd had, this website and social media kind of resources where you can have this space. And again, we, we do hear sort of positive anecdotal evidence of young people having, you know, young people being more open to ideas of gender fluidity and sexuality and being on a spectrum. And it's, I mean, for us, that's very heartening. It's, and it's great to hear that kind of experience coming through from young people directly who tell us this. But also, yeah, again, because it's anecdotal, I'm just cautious. I guess I, I, I'm, I think I'm a pessimist on this question. I'm cautious that although we hear some really good headlines and we hear things like the Scottish government saying they want to be world leading on inclusive education, how much of that gets translated into the experiences of lonely 15 year olds living in potentially dangerous homophobic family settings? That kind of thing is a real question for us because yeah, they're the kind of young people we're particularly conscious that we want to reach because we see the internet as being an opportunity where there hasn't been this opportunity, sort of that, that access for advice and support, which you might not ever have been able to access otherwise as a young person, particularly. I think, yeah, returning to that idea of the domestic setting and the control of information being quite limited to those people you have around you as a, as a young person without something like the internet. Me and my team were all in our 20s, early 30s now. We were of a generation that was the first to sort of grow up with the internet in our puberty years. And so we're really aware of that divide between having that access and not having that access and all of the challenges that the internet can pose for young people, particularly around porn and particularly around the negative narratives that they then have access to and that start to inform their sexuality and identity and their ideas of intimacy, but also the, the opportunity that it poses yeah, I've got a bit off the topic of the question, but I do think, yeah, in terms of intergenerationally, the internet is one very tangible change that we've seen between generations now. And I think if there's something we can cling on to as a sort of tangible control, that is definitely something that is not a control because it's something that has changed. Um, and maybe that's, yeah, 
a, a good place to start thinking about these questions because we know that that is a very different experience of those teenage years and um and beyond yeah 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 that's really helpful thank you and something that's really positive and constructive i think about fumble is it's centering of young people as active and agentic rather than passively sitting say in the classroom which has been seen as the site of sex and relationship learning and some of what you've said has already challenged that but if we thinking about what you're saying and the Celia interviewees um, again they, they talked about um, being active and searching for other information sometimes being compelled to do that because it wasn't provided in the classroom what do you think about these forms of learning inside and outside of the classroom should we be looking to teachers and other professionals or elsewhere Another great question, and I think that is something that is, again, quite exciting about the digital space, is that the sort of binary hierarchy of who's educating and who's being educated becomes more fluid because of this exchange of ideas and this exchange of experiences. And certainly we find that at Fumble, what's what's exciting about our work is that we do work directly with young people and co-create our content with them. So we are responding to not just the issues that young people are facing, which are evolving all the time in terms of the, the, the field of sex and relationships, but also, and they're changing all the time because a lot of it's becoming digitized and all of these questions are sort of, sort of evolving to adapt to being online or being a sort of blended online, offline relationships or sex or intimacy sphere. So yeah, so the things that they're struggling with or the things that they're finding challenging or have questions about are adapting all the time. And then also the way that they're consuming information and exchanging information with each other is changing all the time because there's new social media channels, there's new forms of digital content, there's new sort of trends in which digital content is relevant or cool at any time, obviously. So for us for to be a meaningful site of education today, I think whether that be like us as a non-profit website and associated social channels being a digital space for young people, all that be more formal in school academic settings, take account of the way that information exchange is changing and the way that young people are educating themselves and each other. There's a lot of peer-to-peer stuff happening both offline and online. So to be a meaningful education intervention in this area, I think you have to be aware of that and be working within that or working to keep continue to enhance that sort of online and offline um, interplay. And then also the idea that sex ed in schools is the be all and end all is just such a limited conception of what sex ed, regardless of the internet, what it ever was, what it ever should be in terms of informing your intimacy, your sense of self, your sense of your interrelation with other people in the world to do it in a in a sort of an underfunded ill-equipped teacher student dynamic in the school setting has I mean yeah I'm not going to knock it because we need it definitely and for it to be coming compulsory across UK schools only now in the next couple of years depending on which of the countries I mean it's too it's too little too late basically but it's something so I'm not knocking it but it's also always going to be a very specific part of that wider education that a young person has in this area which again is why I spoke about the cultural sphere in terms of messaging in film and television and music um, etc and there are some exciting developments there there's some very cool programs being made now that would this is a good example of something tangible that's changed 
never had something like the Netflix drama Sex Education when I was a teenager, which young people are, as far as we can tell, genuinely watching and engaging with. So it's not just me as a slightly older person saying, hey, this is a cool thing that must young people must be enjoying, but actually they're not watching it and don't care. But we know from speaking to groups of certainly like sixth form students that they're, they've all watched sex education, which is exciting to hear about because it is a really healthy vision of a drama that addresses these questions. That, that's great to hear. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about specific groups of young people as well. So why would sex and relationship education be particularly important for LGBTQI plus young people? Basically, we know from speaking to young people of the LGBTQ plus community all the time in our work, and the reason we speak to them all the time, perhaps more than any other minority group, is because they are so excited about Fumble as a platform because they didn't get anything like this. So people in their 20s now, and even younger people, so people in their late teens, they they see the value of something like that so and they recognize the potential of the internet as a space for this because i think that lgbtq plus young people have historically relied more on alternative forms of education alternative forms of community building and alternative forms of like peer-to-peer -peer support and that has been really essential as well um that peer-to-peer -peer support because of not having that representation in mainstream education or culture no one to overstate that it's a sort of a community that's predisposed to to be excited about this or predisposed to see the potential in that but certainly in anecdotally tangibly from my work with Fumble a lot of the members of the the wider queer community are really enthusiastic about it um and I think yeah def I mean it's definitely true to say that that there just wasn't the representation and there still isn't the representation in, in school settings for LGBT provision. And it's still such a contentious area of this. Well, for example, and I'm more, I'm more confident talking about this scene in England than in Scotland, sure. um, just because that's where I'm based and I'm a bit more plugged into that. But certainly the statutory introduction of sex ed is still ongoing now and should be happening across all schools during this academic year that we're in but the pandemic, which simultaneously has shown how important this kind of education is for young people, particularly around mental health, physical well-being, sexual health, access to that kind of thing. Never has that been more obviously needed. Um, but also, yet again, because of the pandemic, fair enough, it's a global pandemic, but sex, sex education has slipped to the bottom of the agenda. And although it was supposed to be like introduced in, across all England schools in September this year, there's leeway because the schools are obviously operating in an unprecedented situation right now. So it's, I mean, it's completely reasonable, but it's also frustrating from the perspective of this was finally due to happen and has slipped once again. What does that mean for organisations like yourselves um, that, that are LGBT? QI plus friendly, where equalities agenda risks um, coming on and off the landscape, depending on resources. Obviously, we spoke about the global pandemic, but do you find yourself in that kind of vulnerable political economic uh, climate beyond pandemia, or is this is the pandemic specifically disrupting your work? We have been growing as an organisation. We launched in 2017 and year on year as a group, we've been a voluntary group running Fumble until recently. Um, we've been growing to the point where we needed to formalise as a charity and start to work to get the funding in to cover 
the demand that we have for what we're doing, both in terms of young people who are looking for our content, but also young people who want to be involved in co-creating that content for other young people. And we find that demand from both of those groups of young people is really high. But like in terms of the funding landscape for organisations doing what we're doing, and especially given the context of how important this holistic education is, there just isn't really that much devoted to what we're trying to do. It is a difficult landscape to get that funding. And there's so much that we want to be doing as Fumble and we've identified as this is a necessary intervention, various different projects that we want to be able to run. Um, and we know that there's enthusiasm from young people. We know that there's enthusiasm from other organizations in the same sector or in adjacent sectors around things like women's health, um, around things like LGBTQ plus young people, around things like masculinity, um, positive masculinity related to that mental health and mental health more broadly. There's so much work almost to be done there. And yet the funding landscape isn't meeting it. And, and we're exploring every possible avenue across state funding, private, private found, trust and foundation, contract work for local authorities, all kinds of things. It is an interesting moment because there is more and more enthusiasm for the idea of sex education, I think. And maybe that's a generational thing again. Um, or maybe I'm just feeling that because of the work I do, but actually wider isn't there, that enthusiasm. So maybe we'll see people being more open to the idea of taking it seriously in a holistic way in the coming near future, but uh, remains to be seen. Yes, yes. And you've touched on different controversies um, and sticking points, different contentions over the years. And the Cilia interviews took place in the context of the Gender Recognition Act um, consultation in Scotland. And I know that that's a, a debate that hasn't um, gone away. And what it, what it really reminded me of is perpetual kind of um, differences, divisions between and amongst LGBTQI plus uh, groups. Certainly in our sample, people who did have an opinion about the Gender Recognition Act and its possible uh, reform or pro-reform. But of course, this was a, a real point of contention and interviews talked about a toxic climate, including on social media. So I wondered if you th thought that was um, another sticking point for LGBT plus communities um, or if we were seeing more commonalities and more coalitions, perhaps, rather than divisions. Yeah. I'd like to preface a response by saying, while I really reject normative binaries of gender and sexuality, I do personally belong to very normative identity groups. So I'm a white woman, cisgender, and I'm in a heterosexual relationship. So I don't want to sort of hog the stage. And I think that's probably my main response is that those conversations need to have those people at the center of them, particularly the most vulnerable groups within that. And again, while not wanting to speak for anyone, I'm just, in, I'm strongly inclined to the side of solidarity rather than um, splintering off, particularly when it comes to these very essential questions of human rights and just very strongly on the side of as much solidarity as possible with these questions, particularly like, yeah, particularly when it's such a fundamental thing, identity, sexuality, gender, and one sense of self and how we interrelate with each other. And also from a more normative position myself, I wish I had been taught 
LGBTQ plus education across the entire spectrum of that community, because I want to be able to genuinely participate in a society where everyone's experiences are valid and integrated. From not being part of that community directly, but from caring about that, every group within that community and the health of our wider society, it troubles me to see trans rights being up for debate in the way that it has been. And it feels like a backward step from my position, certainly. Mm -hmm. That's well expressed, thank you. Um, and if I can throw in a question about, because you raised this earlier, and it's, I suppose it's a question of who does the work and where does the work go in times like these. And do you have any thoughts on the value of academic and activist or practitioner and collaborations? Yeah, I think it's a great idea because there is a feedback loop of demand for that kind of research. Because I think even just talking today, you and I, I keep returning to this idea of this, these questions are great questions. Like, are we making progress or are we not? And how do we quantify that? I can tell you from my experience of working in a nonprofit with young people, the kind of themes that come up for me. But is that representative of wider society? And where would I get that information if not from academic research? And how would you know that that's a question that's coming up unless you ask people like me or you do your public surveys and interviews? So I think that that interaction and sort of collaboration is essential um, for, for uh, yeah, and again, to return to progress for us to make any meaningful progress and to sort of move in the right directions. Yeah. Absolutely, I fully agree and I think it's really useful for our students as well to hear these kind of crossover conversations um, rather than the material just existing in books. So thank you so much. I know that we will continue to talk over the months, um, but I really appreciate uh, your participation. Yeah, thank you Yvette.